Hey everyone, back again. Now we're continuing on with our episode 5 here. And this is going to start from chapter 26 titled The Accumulation of Money Capital and Its Influence on the Rate of Interest. And we're going to go all the way up to chapter 32, excluding chapter 32, but up till there. And that'll be titled chapter 32, Money Capital and Real Capital 3, the conclusion. Now, before jumping into that, thank you everyone who's been listening to each of these episodes week by week. It really means a lot. If you want to help me out, sharing would be the most valuable. You can also help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. Um, if you found me useful, you know, considering leaving uh, a like or five stars if you're listening on a podcast platform, that also helps me out a lot, uh, and I'd really appreciate it. There are links to find ways how to follow me on Twitter and Instagram in the description if you want to do that at all. Uh, and yeah, without further ado... Let's start episode 5 here with chapter 26, The Accumulation of Money Capital and Its Influence on the Rate of Interest. Now I should mention the last episode ended rather abruptly. I did say it was the end, but normally I say goodbye. Uh, anyways, it doesn't mean I don't love you. The recording got cut off, and I only realized it after... <laughs> it, was, it was funny, I realized I'd done it, and there was another issue, and I did fix the other issue, and then... I'd forgotten about that issue, and then it was too late. I was already up. So yeah, sorry for that. I won't, I won't leave you off so abruptly this time. But anyways, I digress. So this chapter, chapter 26, like not the last one, but the one before uh, in the previous episode, is really filled with quotes describing interest rates and accumulation of capital and wealth from politicians, from um, policymakers, from capitalists, from bankers, from political economists, a number of different people, or he puts forward a number of different perspectives on what establishes the rate of interest or trying to understand what interest is. So I'm not going to go into great detail about each of these quotes because that would take forever. Instead, I want to give the highlights here. And the first highlight is the way that he takes on someone by the name of Mr. Norman who was the director of the Bank of England in 1857. And Mr. Norman claims that interest is determined by the supply and demand of capital. Here he defines capital as all commodities that are used in production. So Mr. Norman is saying that if it costs a lot to make money, that is, if it costs a lot to buy machines that are going to make you money in production, then interest rates are going to be high. Now, there are some immediate issues with this because it might not be that interest rates are high. It might mean that interest rates are low. It depends on a number of other factors. So this is Marx's real big criticism of Mr. Norman here. Because there are many, uh, well, firstly, interest might vary in one industry despite the supply and demand being consistent. So one industry might just have exorbitant uh, interest rates, while supply and demand has effectively remained the same. And also, by saying that interest rate is going to be determined by um, the supply and demand of capital, he's focusing, by focusing his gaze on capital, he's really implying that interest has a relationship to the dollar values of capital in production. But to this, Marx asks, how is the supply and demand for money capital determined? Because what Mr. Norman 
the guy, the Bank of England guy, what his perspective comes down to is that the interest rate, which is another way of saying the value of money, what money can go for on the market, is equal to the value of the cost of production. But the value of the cost of production is represented by money. So what he's really saying here is that money is equal to money. And Marx is, like, in a very quirky, uh, snarky way, he's just pointing out the absurdity of this assertion by this very prominent like, director of the Bank of England. Like The guy should know what he was talking about. But this just speaks to the way that very much like it is difficult for a fish to understand what water is, it is incredibly difficult for anyone to understand the very minute and yet significant elements of capitalist production that has just become so naturalized to them. They don't see anything outside of it. And by virtue of that, they haven't developed the critical capacity to actually understand how it works. Whereas if somebody stood from the outside, they'd be able to look in and say, oh, there are some absurdities here. Like if you were to explain to an alien, you know, someone from another planet, how this worked, chances are they'd have the same questions. Because this guy is really just saying, because uh, if you were to explain to an alien, yeah, interest rate is determined by, determined by the cost of production. And the alien might say, well, isn't the cost of production just represented in money? To which you'd have to say yes. And in which case, all that comes down to is that interest rate is equal to value of money. Which, in you know, this is why I think Marx was, was so brilliant in that he was fully immersed in this world. You know, it's just a European dude. And he had the capacity to see things in a way that no one else did really at the time. To be able to look at the system with such clear eyes and just see what is so contradictory about it. So now Marx takes on another person named Samuel Lloyd, who believed that interest rates vary in response to either alterations in the value of capital, so like Mr. Norman, or in an amount of money or by the amount of money in a country. So Marx says, but if interest in capital is capital or profit in production, he's saying that capital is affected by capital. And again, we arrive at a very similar issue here. So if he's talking about capital, no matter the circumstance, he's saying that in Marx's words, the value of money capital rose because it rose. It just did because it did. However, if he's talking about profit rate, he's wrong because interest can go up or down independently of profit rate's direction. Now, remember from last episode, it's safe to say that there's probably some connection between the two, generally, but it's not a hard and fast rule. It's, it's, it's going to change. There are going to be instances when the profit rate is high and interest rates are low, or vice versa. So to just make that criticism extra clear, Samuel Lloyd says that interest rates are response to capital which essentially comes out to saying that capital is determined by capital. The value of money capital rose because capital rose, which is just another way of saying that the money of capital rose just because it rose. It just, just did. But instead, if because Lloyd is unclear what he's really talking about, if he's talking about the value uh, that is extracted in terms of profit, then that doesn't make sense either because, like I said, interest rates might actually go down when profit rate goes up or vice versa. So this also reveals the extent to which um, 
these political economists and these people who think about this world in this way are really quite sneaky and, uh, and evil. Because this dude also says that alteration, this dude, also says that alterations or fluctuations within the economy can never really hurt lenders, right? Because lenders set up a contractual agreement. It doesn't matter what the market does. The person who borrowed the money is going to be screwed either way. You know, they earn the amount they expect to earn. They still have to give some to the lender. They don't earn however much they're supposed to earn. They're going to have to find a way to give it back to the lender and that's going to be bad. Of course, they're going to go into debt, and that's that's bad. And this guy says this just outright, that fluctuations in the market won't actually affect lenders. And this is something that uh, Maurizio Lazzarato, in his book Governing by Debt, writes about, where it is a lot more beneficial to try to earn your money by lending out money and just having your money valorize itself, just earn money with itself. Whereas if you were to try to open a business, suddenly you're going to have to worry about how you're going to have to pay for the health care of your workers, the well-being of your workers, paying them, trying to keep them happy, dealing with HR complaints. And this is all very messy. It is so much more easy to make money by lending it. And this points to the fact that the capitalist economy is organized in such a way that people with money will just earn money. And there's really no two other ways about it. If you have a lot of money and you invest it just by putting it in a bank, you're probably just going to make more money yearly than an average person will make by actually doing physical work that is going to create the value that those rich people are going to be able to just make for sitting around and doing nothing. Now, these goons also say things that interest is going to increase with capitalist production as it advances, which we already know is likely not going to be the case. But the fact that they say that means that the demand for interest is going to go up, meaning that lenders can raise their interest rates. But the issue with this is that this implies a disequilibrium within the rate of supply and demand, where somehow, and this, all, this is really just Marx's point, that this whole thing about supply and demand is just hocus-pocus nonsense, this reveals the extent to which the capitalists aren't actually interested in attaining this degree of supply and demand, nor using it as an actual useful guide to figure out how to sell their products. They're just trying at every single point to, use, to circumvent any barrier to their accumulation of money. They're trying to circumvent that in any way, and they tell people, they sell the narrative, and it's not necessarily like direct um, didactic teaching people that this is how it works, but just the nature of the capitalist economy, like any other economy, be it feudalism or um, slavery, comes to naturalize it. <laughs> slavery is an economy. Like any other system is going to naturalize itself to the point that it feels like there cannot be an alternative. And this isn't even to mention the fact that if there is this disequilibrium of supply and demand, it'll likely produce crises and motivate the formation of crises. Now, the way that these quotes are worked out is that they're often in the form of conversations where somebody's asking these hotshot figures like Lloyd or like the director of the Bank of England these questions, um, asking them various questions. And at one point, Lloyd is asked about uh, money reserve, the, the amount of money that's actually in reserve. And Lloyd argues that if there is more money in reserve, interest rates will come down. This implies that less money is being borrowed and that therefore business is shrinking and that it is therefore not growing, which would seem then to conflict with the idea that 
it will interest rates will go up as um, capitalism progresses, which is just a contradiction that obviously he doesn't realize he said, but Marx is very quick to point out. So at the core of his, that is Lloyd's ideas and others like Norman, confusion is essentially a failure to acknowledge that in terms of interest, money is a form of capital, not just an instrument of exchange. These people refuse to acknowledge that capital extends beyond just the means of production because they're saying things like money uh, related to the means of production, related to the cost of capital, when in fact what this is showing, what this movement is showing, is that money itself in the system is capitalized. It is self-valorizing. It is, in the eyes of the the lender, it is a form of capital because it's going to earn more money. And that puts us here into chapter 27, the role of credit in capitalist production. So here are some general properties of credit, of the credit system. The credit system, number one, is meant to equalize the profit rate. Number two, it is meant to reduce circulation costs, like it lessens the need to move physical money around or makes it easier to move it around. So it brings down, uh, so you know, you can start businesses based on credit. You don't got to actually move gold around to do these types of things. Uh, It'll accelerate the velocity of the turnovers. It will replace gold money with paper, accelerate the entire reproduction cycle, and so on. So that's, that all falls under the banner of them, of it reducing the circulation costs. Now, it will also allow the formation of joint stock companies. And this joint stock companies will help expand production to such an extent as to necessitate the coordination of speculation and trade. Now, in a sense, the formation of joint stock companies that comes out of credit, that come out of the credit economy, this allows capital to assume a social function, to become a social phenomenon where it is publicly traded and is no longer simply private property. And one of the key points of this book that Marx advocates or shows us is that private property to the capitalist and to capitalism is actually a hindrance to its development. It wants to move beyond private property. So it's certainly a buzzword today uh, to say that, well, we need to abolish private property. And like, yeah, sure. But capitalism is far ahead of you. Capitalism wants, doesn't want private property. Capitalism doesn't want places where it cannot grow or expand into. It wants people to always be investing their money in the movement of capital, which means, of course, having stakes, everybody having a stake in its, um, in its movement. But of course, it's not a system that's going to benefit those people actually investing, uh, unless they're really rich. It's going to keep exploiting them. So capitalists will become managers of a kind of general social capital here that is under their specific control. Now, one of the consequences of this, having more and more people investing more and more money into um, various industries, is that it produces the gravitation of wealth to the most powerful industries, which is why, you know, it's so difficult to actually compete with uh, tech tech giants as just one uh, enterprise, one industry. It's hard to open a business when your competition is Amazon. And so with the formation of the credit economy, when there can be uh, a hoarding 
of money and the investment of money on a very large degree allowing industry to really expand, it will open up the door for monopolization of various sectors of the economy. Um, so like this, I guess one of the terms for this would be like siloization. And one, one good book to, that discusses this is um, called Platform Capitalism, if you, if you want to look at this from a tech perspective. Platform Capitalism by Nick Cernicek, where he discusses the ways that big tech companies, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, you name it, are able to effectively monopolize that industry, allowing little to no competition. Now, this gravitation towards monopoly is, in a sense, the end or marking the beginning of the end of capitalism within capitalism itself. A contradiction pointing us towards a new system, one characterized by swindling and cheating with respect to the promotion of companies, issue of shares, and share dealings. So not just a kind of uh, Adam Smith idea about people uh, working, earning a little extra money, moving the economy in such a way. We are moving into something totally different here. And Marx is calling for this kind of end or thinking about capitalism in new terms, not to say that it's any it's something better, it's not the formation of a post-capitalist communist world, but rather the end of the traditional forms of capitalist production as it was conceptualized by people like Smith, by people like Ricardo, into something new. And so people now own that which isn't theirs with joint stock companies as just one medium, uh, one interface through which to do that. And stock traders profit. They can profit off of other people's production because that's really what's going on with stock trading. You buy a piece of a company and when it profits, you are going to be able to earn profit on top of that, which means that of the profit earned, the capitalist, the owner, is going to have to dish out some of that profit to pay the stockholders. Now, the opposite of this new form of capitalist production and capitalist exploitation would be a worker-run uh, system that would also be social and would abolish the old elements of capitalist production, but in a positive way, not the negative way that we're seeing with these joint stock companies that provide the illusion of social cooperation and participation. But of course, such cooper cooperatives are only possible by using dead exploited labor in infrastructure and machines, though, which is too big of an issue to chew on here. But um, in order to move beyond capitalism, one of the ways to do it is to effectively exploit previously used labor that has been transformed into means of production, what he calls dead labor, like machines, to be able to use it more efficiently, not to accumulate profit and capital, but rather to supply the needs of the people, which is, you know, if those workers are still alive, do you go back and pay them more? I guess if it's a t an entirely new system, you wouldn't need to. But in any case, I put that point out there for anyone who would know how to answer that. So the credit system accelerates production and therefore overproduction because you don't need to wait around for actual money. You can just have someone lend you money and you can then therefore uh, or lend you credit and then you can start production going, even if there might not be buyers at the end of the day in which there's suddenly all this extra stock, there's accumulating debt, people can't pay off that debt, and of course that's going to produce possible crises. And that puts us here into chapter 28, titled Means of Circulation and Capital, the views of Tuke and Fullerton. So here he's going to take on the work of Tuke and Fullerton, as you might have guessed. 
So simply, Tuk separates money into two groups as either currency or capital. So either as a means of exchange or an acknowledgement of its role as capital. In reality though, there are different uses of money that Tuk takes as a qualitative distinction as well. So if we wanted to determine the amount of money in circulation, it doesn't matter whether it's capital or if it's revenue, you know, or profit, like what is earned in dollars. You know, it, can, it can assume many different forms. Now, in times of prosperity, money moves quickly. People might be paid well, workers might be paid relatively well, goods are affordable, debt is low, and banks might uh, begin to get scared, which might cause people, because people are looking to cash in on their banknotes. Because they have all these IOUs, they might you know, want to go to the bank and say, hey, can I have this money for this IOU? And of course, the bank doesn't actually have that money to pay everybody back. So in a time of prosperity, you know, some people might have a little money and they might say, okay, I want to I transform this money into something I can actually use. I want to transform this money in a way to make more money. You know, I want to buy a house. I need to take out all this money that I have in the bank in order to do this. But if everyone's doing this at a period of prosperity, that is, they're all trying to cash in on the money that they have to buy things, not to just have it sitting around in a bank, this is going to cause the bank to panic because they don't have that money there. So Marx suggests that this high demand creates the conditions for a lack of demand, interestingly enough, because it'll produce a time, a period of stagnation. However, Marx qualifies that the demand undergoes a transformation between periods of prosperity and stagnation. Because if everyone's asking for money, but suddenly the bank doesn't have it to dish it out, it's going to produce a crisis. It's going to produce a period of stagnation. And in periods of prosperity, the demand is for means of circulation between dealers and consumers. In stagnation, on the other hand, it is a demand for means of circulation between capitalists. So in, in other words, in a time of prosperity, people want to take out their money to use that money as a means of buying things things that they they want and so it serves that is money serves the end of being a, a, is a means of circulation whereas in a period of stagnation there is a desire to have money but only for those few people that that have it between capitalists to use it as a way for them to make even more money to get production going again or to you know enjoy each other's company now fullerton looks at this situation a little bit differently uh, in the case of banks. For him, capital is when the bank doesn't offer an advance with its own notes, but instead with the proceeds from the sale of securities in reserve, that is government paper, stocks, and other interest-bearing paper. Marx doesn't buy this. Uh, he doesn't buy that this is real capital, though. This money could well be used as means of payment, meaning that it will likely just flow back to the bank unchanged. So both Fullerton and Tuke make the mistake of, in Marx's words, seeing monetary accommodation as identical with the receipt of capital on loan. Because for some people, it's not money isn't actually existing as capital. It's just existing as a means of, of, of exchange between goods that isn't going to earn them more money at the end of the day, because that's what distinguishes capital from just money. Money is what you spend on things that, you know, you're not going to make more money off of whereas capital is what is when money is transformed into a way to earn you more money for things to be valorized for that money to be valorized and that puts us here into chapter 29 
banking capital's component parts. Banking capital consists of uh, cash, that is gold or notes, and securities. Now this is kind of a side point, but you remember how, as I just said, with Tuke and Fullerton, that money as a means of circulation and money as a means of payment was transformed in, into a distinction between circulation, money just in circulation and capital. So Marx will come to show how this also happens with money capital that, uh, that is confused with what he'll present as moneyed capital. So to go back, banking capital as interest-seeking money is not really capital. Let me say that again. Banking capital as interest-seeking money is not really capital. Before it is lent out, it is just sitting around, right? This money is just sitting in the bank. And when it is lent, it is still just sitting around again with this other person having it until it's spent to purchase something that will valorize it. So you sell or you lend out $100 to somebody. It's still just $100 until it's spent on something that will somehow make it more than that. So bankers have no problem ignoring this, this fact that they're just lending out $100 and it's received as $100. And, call it, and they still call it capital anyways. So they'll say something like how debt is a commodity. And this is something that I think by now we're, we're familiar with the idea that debt itself is a commodity insofar as it can be exchanged and traded, where you can trade debt among different shareholders in order to offset the cost of that debt or to short that debt, you know, to bet against that debt or the anticipation of a perspective of, of a possible debt. So the banker ignores all this, ignores that, you know, the money is still just the same money when it's lent out because they want to live in the fantasy world that it is capital, even though there's no guarantee that that money is going to valorize itself. I mean, you, you, given it out to somebody and then you just kind of hope that it's going to come back as more than what it was when you lent it out, which would signal that it had been capitalized. And that's capitalized isn't a word here, but that it has been valorized. It has earned value. So insofar as bankers here look upon the money they lend out as capital, even though it isn't, um, they tend or at times look at labor the same way. They look at labor as capital, but not because it is naturally valorizing as the labor theory of value lays out, but instead because it is interest bearing, which might seem strange, but they suggest that wages are the interest. So the worker sells themselves and they earn what they need to survive. Everything on top of that, you know, any kind of extra that'll provide for basic goods you know, is a kind of interest upon the labor that that person provided. And so the banker looks at the worker and says, oh, how lucky you are to live in this world to be able to, to have your work exploited like this because you were earning interest on what work you're doing here, which of course is just hocus pocus. Now, this is the height of the logic of fictitious capital as Marx lays it out insofar as and this is what he calls capitalization. So we have investments made into industries through uh, lending through banks, through stock companies, whatever, with the hope of future returns. But the yield of these companies is in or, uh, of these lend of this lended out money is independent of the actual reproduction process that it is investing in. 
So a country might be consistently industrial and prosperous, but the stock investments might fluctuate in their returns. And again, this is to emphasize the fact that the relationship between profit and interest while there is not concrete, and it's not so easy to assume. Now there's a short bit from page 599, again, in the Penguin Classics version of this book, that I want to read. It's just a couple of lines, or a few lines. As long as their depreciation was not the expression of any standstill in production, and in railway and canal traffic, or an abandonment of undertaking already begun, or a squandering of capital in positively worthless enterprises, the nation was not a penny poorer by the bursting of these soap bubbles of nominal money capital. So money capital, even though it can produce crises in its investment and its creation of debt, doesn't actually do anything other than um, create a situation in which possible crises can really emerge because production ensues without it. It is only possible by coming out of the entire production pool. And what I mean by that is that all excess money that can, you know, someone's got sitting around that they can then lend out was only possible because somebody somewhere else was exploited for their labor. And that puts us here into chapter 30 titled Money Capital and Real Capital 1. So that there's going to be Money Capital and Real Capital 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so with all this being said, Marx wants to address two fundamental questions. Is there a connection between money capital and overproduction? Or is it something different? So does money capital not have this connection to overproduction or just to production in general? The second question is to what extent does a lack in loan capital result in a lack of real capital? You know, real capital like in the machines or, or labor that is spent within production. So to, to some extent, yes, to both questions. There is a connection between money capital, which is fictitious capital, you know, it's just fairy dust, and real capital. What actually creates products, what actually creates value and wealth or extracts it from workers so yes, to some extent, because they exist often as investments for real capital. You know, otherwise, some real railway wouldn't be produced unless somebody borrowed that money or some, someone wouldn't be able to open up a factory to make shoes that, you know, could only happen through borrowing that money. However, the value of these loans is, uh, that they assume, the value these loans assume is incredibly fictitious, like with stocks. Stock prices will likely increase as interest rates come down, causing high demand, which means that uh, profit rate has come down. So while there is some kind of a connection between the investment of fake capital as, as money capital and real capital, while there is some connection, there is a whole lot of mystery into how one is actually related to the other in terms of value and cost. So I haven't really addressed the question whether or not investment can cause overproduction. And to some extent, yes, of course. I mean, if you have production paid for by loans, it's going to create a situation in which it's possible to overproduce. And if you overproduce, it means there aren't going to be buyers for your things, which means that you aren't going to earn money, that you aren't then going to be able to pay your workers. Your workers aren't going to have enough money in order to live. They might take out more loans, more debt, more loans, more debt and so on until someday these things have to be paid off. And if they can't be paid off, it might throw the whole system into a crisis. 
Now, this will likely mean that the cost of items in relation to what might be vulgarly considered their natural market price are going to have to go up and up and up because as interest rates go up with more demand going up, capitalists are going to need to offset these high uh, interest rates by charging more for their products. At the same time, they're probably going to try to reduce wages or like in the case of Canada today or the United States to never increase or to very rarely increase the minimum wage, always to be beneath inflation, of course. And like just as an exercise, I mean, the interest rate in Canada or the inflation rate in Canada is like five or six percent. And we can be sure that, you know, the price of wages has not gone up five or six percent each year. But and, you know, the other side of this is that one of the necessary means of subsistence for humans, shelter, has gone up exorbitantly, has gone up just just an unimaginable amount across all Canadian cities. I'm just using Canada because I live here. It's gone up in every single city. So people can't even afford to live. And so many people are just relying so unbelievably upon debt in order to stay afloat. And this debt has become naturalized. It's just assumed that people are going to take on debt. Now, at the time Marx was writing this, um, vulgar economists thought that it was actually underproduction that would produce crises. Because if you had underproduction, you weren't making enough to meet needs, and so therefore that will create problems, especially when you're dealing with the means of subsistence like food or shelter. While that might be true, it's important to note that overproduction, what is often taken as a sign of prosperity, will actually also produce crises. And that puts us here into money capital and real capital too. So there are two ways of having money capital either by turning money into loans or turning capital into more money or into money, then into loans. So only the second case demonstrates a connection between industry and money capital. In the other case, you know, you're you're, you're just sitting on a hoard of money, maybe from some dynasty that, you know, from years past, and you're just lending it out in loans because you're greedy and you just want to make more money for the sake of making more money. Now, another factor that might affect uh, the influence, the amount of loan capital is if, hypothetically, a new mine was discovered and suddenly there's more money that can be dished out to people. And I was wondering this as I was reading because, you know, at the time, given the fact that communication probably isn't, definitely wasn't as well established as it is now, I wonder how easy it would have been to actually regulate the entrance of new money onto the market. Because if you found a mine... And your one country, I don't know, like in a newly found United States finds a mine and suddenly everybody there has all this gold and they're using this gold to buy European goods. That will inflate the price of gold or deflate the price of gold in the market because now there's so much more gold, its value will have come down. And I was just wondering if if there's like an expectation, you know, they find a mine, they got to call somebody or write a letter and say, hey, you know, just be ready. The value of your gold is about to decrease. Anyway, so yeah. So loan capital, insofar as it is represented in money, will be produced from un- or from productive capital. It will come out of capital's surplus value or workers' wages, which is really, you know, the workers' wages of the representation are connected to the surplus value. Uh, so that's kind of a 
it's kind of redundant to say that. But the point is that that I've already mentioned is that loan capital is only possible because production is occurring somewhere else or has occurred previously, and there has been a surplus earned on top of um, what was actually made by the workers or what was paid to the workers. And this can then be distributed amongst capitalists to be part of that total social capital that we discussed in episode one or episode two that stands in for the kind of total amalgamation of all possible capital that all the capitalists just move around amongst themselves and they take part in. And I mean, like even what they pay to the workers is just going to end up back to the capitalists. Because remember, it's in the capitalist interest to keep costs down in wages while increasing the cost of goods. So there's always going to be uh, more exploitation occurring beyond the domain of the workplace, beyond the, the factory, when the worker shows up to buy something and they're paying more for it than they were paid to actually make that thing, or their buddy was, you know, in another industry. And so they're going to get screwed in that way once more. And that can only go on for so long before people aren't actually able to afford the things that they are making. And sure, people like to cite the Henry Ford thing of making the cars so affordable through automation and whatnot that people were making. And maybe there's something good to be said about that. But that was largely contingent upon previous years of exploitation that could then make these machines that people could use. And of course, that system did not last very long uh, before you know, U.S. companies were like, yeah, we want more money. And they sent their companies overseas, their factories overseas or to Mexico to get cheap labor. And that'll put us here into chapter 32. And I'm going to stop here, which will be Money Capital and Real Capital 3. And that will begin episode 6 next time. Now, for any of now I'll, I'll give you a real uh, goodbye here, not, a, not an abrupt thing like last time. For those that, of you that have listened, really, uh, I commend you. I hope you keep listening. I hope I'm, I'm valuable to you. If there's anything I got wrong or mixed up, I'd love to hear about it um, or anything that if you just want to say I'm silly, then you can do that too. If you happen to have liked what I did, you could leave five stars on a podcast platform or leave a like on YouTube. That would help me out a lot. You can leave reviews on podcast platforms too. I read them all. Um, I, I can't respond to them there, but I love to read them. Uh, same with YouTube. I don't have time to respond to all of your comments, uh, even though I'd like to. And yeah, uh, on that note, take care.